advent of a period of chaos. During this period, as has been said, the Argentine statesman, Rivadavia, was working wholeheartedly towards the intellectual betterment of his country, and in this he was assisted by Alvar and others, but the warlike stress of the period cut short the majority of these endeavors. The Brazilians, anxious to conclude the war, had brought down their entire fleet to the river plate, and they were blockading the entrance to the river and the port of Buenos Aires. At the sight of the hostile vessels the local differences were for the time being laid aside, and, war vessels being an urgent necessity, public subscriptions were eagerly forthcoming for the purchase of these. The small Argentine fleet, when completed, was placed under the orders of that gallant Irishman, Admiral Brown, and the naval leader lost no time in forcing his attacks home upon the hostile fleet. Owing to the fury of these, the efficiency of the blockade was destroyed. Although the Brazilian vessels continued in the neighborhood for some while, General Olver was now appointed commander of the land force operating against Brazil, and in conjunction with the Uruguayan general, La Valja, he assumed the aggressive, defeated the Imperial Army, and was in turn about to invade the Brazilian province of Rio Grande, when he found himself obliged to abandon the project owing to the want of horses from which his army suffered. In 1827 Rivadavia's government fell and after a while Manuel Dorigo, a gifted soldier and politician, found himself at the head of the state. Peace was now signed with Brazil, but on terms which the great majority of the Argentines resented bitterly, and the unrest in the republic rapidly came to a head. Dorigo was opposed by General Lavala, one of the most famous personalities of the period. Both parties resorted to arms. Dorigo's force was defeated and its leader captured. On this Lavala, a brilliant and liberal-minded man, committed the gravest error of his career one, moreover, the nature of which was entirely foreign to his character for, after capturing Dorigo, he executed his prisoner, reasons of state were the cause of this political crime, since no personal animosity was involved, this act was fiercely resented by Dorigo's party in general, it brought upon Lavala more particularly the enmity of Juan Manuel Roses, the man of blood and iron, whose fierce star had now begun its definite ascent. An active warfare took place between the two, and although it was interrupted now and again by truces, these were of short duration, and the struggle continued almost without intermission until the death of Lavala in 1840, when fleeing after his ultimate defeat at the hands of the opposing party. This, however, is to anticipate somewhat, since it was as early as 1829 that Roses first took charge of the Argentine government. While this famous leader was in the act of gradually consolidating his power, the country had become divided into two main parties the Federals and the Unitarians. Roses stood as the chief of the Federal Party, while Lavala and his colleagues represented the Unitarians. After a while it became evident that, so far as the capital was concerned, the influence of Roses was supreme, and it was not long before Buenos Aires began to feel the weight of that grim personage's hand. Very soon a reign of terror commenced. The alarmed citizens discovered that all personal security was now at an end, and that the laws of the Constitution were replaced by the enactments and degrees made at the will of Roses. All this time the latter was strengthening his position, and when the dreaded leader succeeded in establishing himself firmly in the dictator's chair, the severity of his rule increased still more. He laid down laws, not only concerning public affairs, but also affecting the intimate private life of the citizens. Red being the dictator's favorite color, it followed in his mind that the nation must mold itself upon his tastes completely. Thus every citizen of Buenos Aires, in order to show his loyalty to the autocratic governor, 
was obliged to wear a rosette or band of red. This wearing of the red naturally became the custom. It was the result of no special decree. But the unwritten law was not to be denied. Indeed, did any rash inhabitant of Buenos Aires refrain from obeying it? The result of his independence was that he betrayed himself an open enemy of the dictator, and he met with the inevitable punishment for this, which was in any case imprisonment, and possibly death. The blood like you, moreover, was encouraged not only in dress, but in general decorations, and even in the walls of houses, and every other object in which it could be employed. The executions during the twenty and odd years which Rose's held office amounted to many thousands, the melancholy total, indeed would assuredly have been still further increased had not the majority of the more intellectual and of the more important colonial families fled across the frontiers and taken refuge either in Chile or in Uruguay. The character of Rose's was strangely complex. It must not be supposed that he was nothing beyond a mere brigand and tyrant, who busied himself with executions and plunder. To the exclusion of all other occupations, he was, indeed, in many respects a man experienced in the ways of the broader world, and was able, after his particular fashion, to hold his own with European diplomats and others of the kind, the great naturalist, Darwin, for instance, when on his visit to the Argentine provinces, was brought into contact with Roses, and admits that he was very struck with the personality of the leader, who in conversation was enthusiastic, sensible, and very grave. His gravity, he continues, is carried to a high pitch. General Roses, as a matter of fact, appears to have possessed the happy knack of impressing favorably almost everyone whom he met, and the explanation of his policy, when recorded from his own lips, was wont to ring very differently from that given by his opponents. It is probable enough that in many respects his views were truly patriotic. His methods, on the other hand, were callous to an altogether inhuman point. It island in any case, quite certain that the value he placed on life was altogether infinitesimal. As time went on the power of Roses steadily increased, and the rival chieftains one by one withdrew from the contest or met with their death in one of the wars of the age. Garibaldi himself had broken a lance in the cause of the Unitarians. Rivera and other progressive leaders had fought against him in vain. There were others of the type of Quiroga, who, brought up in the same school as Roses, although of lesser birth for the family of the dictator was patrician joined him for a while in a species of tentative alliance and then broke away usually to their cost. Biscuirova was one of the most noted chieftains of the interior of the distraught republic. He had swept the western provinces with fire and sword, executing, burning, and plundering wherever he went. Had he not fallen foul of roses, he might have continued his grim career unchecked for years. As it was, he came in contact with a master mind, and, as was inevitable, perished. There are many Argentines even today who claim that, for all the tyranny of the dictator, the country was none the worse for his rule, and that the regime which he introduced, however bloodthirsty and horrible, was at all events one of discipline such as the distracted collection of provinces had never known since the days of the Spanish rule. There is no doubt whatever concerning the existence of this discipline, so severe was the phase, and so vague was the slender amount of liberty left to the private citizens, that many of these latter lived at periods immured within their houses lest by sallying forth into the street they should unwittingly offend the powers and pay the penalty. The relations of Roses with the foreign powers soon grew strained. He fell foul of the French and British nations, and as a result the Allied fleets arrived off the mouth of the River Plate and blockaded Buenos Aires. The outcome of this, however, was purely negative. 
Although the Republic suffered inconvenience from the cessation of trade, the community was self-supporting, while it was impossible, of course, for the European forces to attempt to carry on land operations. Thus, after a prolonged stay in the waters of the River Plate, the blockade was raised, and the French and British fleets sailed away, having to all intents and purposes failed to achieve their object. The extraordinary force of Rose's character is best instanced by the length of his rule. This, as has been said, continued for over twenty years, until the year 1852, that a dictator should have continued to hold the reins of power for this length of time in the face of the opposition and hatred which, although smothered, were rampant on every side of him was undoubtedly a most amazing feat. His political end, when it came, was a rapid one. After having humbled every aspirant who strove to challenge his power, he was confronted by General Urquiza, who had for years dominated the province of Ontario's. The numbers of the actively discontented had now reached truly formidable dimensions. Brazil and Uruguay both came to the assistance of those Argentines who were disposed to attempt rebellion afresh. After years of enforced and trembling peace, a large army composed of Argentines, Brazilians, and Uruguayans, under the joint command of the Brazilian Marquis de Caxias and General Urquiza, crossed the Paraná River, invaded the province of Buenos Aires, defeated Rosas's troops, and advanced on the capital. On February 3, 1852, the fateful Battle of Caseros was fought, rather less than 10 miles from the town of Buenos Aires. The terrified civilian inhabitants of the town awaited the result in profound suspense. All the while the fight was raging a succession of messengers came galloping through the streets bearing contradictory fragments of news. After some hours the citizens were no longer left in doubt. The stragglers of Rosas's beaten army came pouring into the town, and it became known that the dictator, completely defeated, had fled. General Rosas and his daughter were received on a British warship, and sailed for Southampton, in which town the famous leader remained until the day of his death. Urquiza was received by the inhabitants of Buenos Aires with delirious joy as the deliverer of the Republic. By means of the proclamations which he showered upon the populace he endeavored to make it clear that he would continue in that capacity. It was not long, however, before his actions aroused the suspicions of the townsfolk. In fact, after a while it became fairly evident that Urquiza, having once found himself in the full enjoyment of power, was by no means indisposed to follow the example so grimly set by Rosas although this possibly in a minor degree. It is true that the new chief of the Republic passed some progressive measures, including one which opened the waters of the River Plate closed during the rule of Rosas to foreign commerce, but the general tendency of his government was popularly held to be of the reactionary order. Revolutions against his authority broke out, and in July of 1853, some 18 months after the Battle of Caseros, General Urquiza was conveyed from Buenos Aires in a United States man-of-war to his headquarters in his own province of Ontario's, where he remained, leading a semi-private life in the enjoyment of his vast estates. With the retirement of Urquiza we come practically to the modern conditions of the Great Republic of Argentina, for General Bartolo Mitre now came into power, and with the advent of the famous Argentine president the Republic began to assume something of its present importance. It was, however, not until 30 years later that the final differences between Buenos Aires and the other provinces were completely adjusted. The effect of this settlement was remarkable and immediate, for simultaneously with the removal of the jealousies which had hitherto reigned between the great province of Buenos Aires and its neighbors the last impediment in the path of progress vanished. 
and the Republic advanced with an almost startling rapidity to the importance of its present position in the world's affairs. During all this while the small Republic of Uruguay, which had cut itself adrift from Argentina in the course of the War of Independence, had continued on a somewhat checkered and stormy career. After innumerable struggles, the dauntless little state succeeded in freeing itself from the aggressions of its powerful neighbors to the north and south. This did not suffice to put an end to internal unrest, and the rival parties the Colorados and the Blancos made a battleground of the Republic for generation after generation. Notwithstanding this, the intellectual progress of the Uruguayans has continued throughout, and the development of the national industries on a fitting scale is now proceeding. Chapter XXVII The Northern Republic's such history as can be claimed by the remaining republics of South America has been achieved, from the political point of view, on a far smaller and less conspicuous scale than that of the great southern and central states. In many respects the happenings have been more strictly local, although, of course, there have been a certain number of incidents, such as that of President Castro in Venezuela whose irresponsible conduct roused half the European powers to take action against his country, and whose childish obstinacy was responsible for temporarily strained relations between Great Britain and the United States. This may serve as an example of what weighty influences may be brought to bear by totally insignificant causes, of this group of lesser republics. However, Venezuela may well enough be taken among the last since that state still remains one of the rapidly declining number of republics whose affairs continue in a really backward condition. Of the remaining countries of the North, Bolivia Island it scarcely need be said, by far the most important, that the interests of this country have up to the present not been of a more cosmopolitan character as due mainly to the fact of the great difficulty experienced in the establishing of modern communications in so wealthy yet so mountainous a land. According to F. Garcia Calderon, Bolivia sprang armed and full-grown as in the classic myth, from the brain of Bolivar, the liberator gave to her a name, a constitution, and a president, in 1825 he created, by decree, an autonomous republic in the colonial territory of the district of the Charcas, and became its protector, Sucre, the hero of Ayacucho, succeeded him in 1826, during the war of independence this noble friend of Bolivar resigned from power, disillusioned, he was the Patroclus of the American Iliad. Sucre's name is one of those most intimately and gloriously associated with the history of the youthful state. After his passing and that of Bolivar, Andrea Santa Cruz became the virtual ruler of Bolivia. Santa Cruz was a powerful chief, who feared not to shed blood in the cause of civilization, as he understood it, and who, considering the circumstances in which he found himself, proved an extremely able and enlightened president. Under his fostering care the national security became a little more assured, and the treasury of the republic waxed. Santa Cruz is said by some to have cherished imperialistic ambitions. It is certain that his talents were recognized to some extent in Europe, if from no other evidence than from the fact that he received the order of the Legion of Honor from Louis Philippe of France. There is no doubt that the new chief of state realized to the full the benefits which the influx of foreigners must bring to his country. On this account he encouraged immigration from Europe. Santa Cruz, indeed, did his utmost to introduce every measure likely to increase the population of Bolivia, and, as has been explained in another place, carried his policy to the length of proposing the exclusion of celibates from all public offices. The powerful personality of Santa Cruz soon enabled him to become the virtual protector of Peru, in addition to President of Bolivia, and he now began to organize the fusion of the two republics into a single state. 
These measures were regarded with great uneasiness by the Kilians, who ultimately invaded the territory of Santa Cruz. The first Kilian expedition was defeated, but the second gained a decisive victory at Yungay in 1838, and, as a result of this battle, the star of Santa Cruz became totally eclipsed in South America. He retired to Paris, where he became the friend of Napoleon III, and where he died in 1865. With the exile of Santa Cruz ended the first period of tranquility enjoyed by the youthful republic. His powerful figure was followed by many others, the majority of whom were tyrannical, some incapable, and a few whose aims were really progressive. Progress, indeed, in the vortex of the whirlpool of events which ensued was practically an impossibility. It is said that from 1825 to 1898 more than 60 revolutions burst out in Bolivia, to say nothing of intermittent foreign wars. In the course of these various struggles no less than six presidents were assassinated, and it was not until the advent to power of Colonel now General Pando that the situation of the country changed definitely for the better. In the year 1899 President Pando inaugurated civil government, and, having proved himself an able and powerful soldier, now turned his attention to the industrial and commercial status of the country. These desirable features he fostered by modern and liberal methods, which proved eminently successful and it was during the period of his office that the first really important plans were matured for the opening up of the remoter districts by means of the railway. The most severe blow with which Bolivia has met since the foundation of the republic in that country has been the loss of her coastline. As the result of the unsuccessful war waged against Chile, negotiations have on several occasions been initiated with a view to an attempt to recover some strip of the lost territory even if no more than sufficient for the building of a port and for the accommodation of a railway line to connect this point on the seaboard with the interior of the Republic, but, so far, none of these negotiations have been brought to a favorable issue. Bolivia thus remains an inland state, but in spite of a disadvantage such as this, there is no doubt that the extraordinary natural wealth of the country, which must in the near future be exploited, will rapidly bring the Republic into the forefront of the South American nations from the commercial and industrial point of view. With the exception of this and one or two other circumstances of the kind, the majority of the South American states have suffered very little frontier alteration since their first foundation. Such, however, has not been the case with the northern states of Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. Here, for almost half a century after the liberation of the provinces, a process of alternate fusion and disintegration continued. Thus, in 1832, the three states of Venezuela, Ecuador, and New Granada were formed. In 1863 the latter country became the United States of Colombia, but it was not until 1886 that the Republic of Colombia as it now stands was instituted. Colombia has suffered from as many revolutions as the majority of its neighbors. General Santander, one of the many of Bolivar's lieutenants who became presidents, was the first chief of state of Venezuela, a strong ruler. He governed in comparative peace until 1831. The next important president to follow him was General Mosquera, who likewise held the reins of power with a firm hand, and, with two or three breaks, ruled from 1845 to 1867. Dr. Rafael Nunez succeeded him, and proved himself an intellectual president, who became more and more autocratic as his years of office increased. He continued, indeed, whether in the actual tenure of office or not, to exercise an influence of personal absolutism over the Republic until 1894, when he died, 
His death was the signal for the breaking out of internal disturbances which his long rule had steadily kept in check. It was in 1903 that, owing to the negotiations in progress for the enterprise of the Panama Canal, the portion of Colombia which had been chosen for the purpose of the cutting seceded from the Republic, and established itself as a separate state that of Panama. The new Republic immediately concluded arrangements with the United States of America, and granted concessions for the immense enterprise which is now in the act of being completed. The history of Ecuador since the establishment of the Republic requires very little comment. In the state the proportion of the white races to the colored is unusually small, nevertheless. This has not had the effect of checking the revolutions, of which the Republic has been extremely prolific. General Juan José Flores stands as the chief hero of Ecuador. He it was who actually founded the Republic in 1830. Flores provides one more instance of the power of the men who stood at the helm of these new states when they were first of all launched on the stormy waters of their careers. When his 15 years of power ended came the inevitable flock of revolutions, and Ecuador went the way of her neighbors. A military dictatorship endured until 1860, when Garcia Moreno, being declared president, supported the clerical influence and established a species of dictatorship. His influence continued for many years after he had ostensibly resigned his office, and the sincerity of his acts was unquestionable, considering that the situation of the country rendered it necessary. He resumed power and arrested various attempts at revolutions. In 1875, however, he was assassinated. A statesman of disinterested merit and high ideals, he was generally mourned by the populace. Venezuela began its fateful career under the guardianship of General Pease, one of the principal heroes of the revolution. It was Pease who had led his Lanaro cavalry so often to victory against the Spaniards, and who, as already related in these pages, had achieved the unique feat of capturing a flotilla of Spanish gunboats or, to be more accurate, gun barges by means of this very cavalry. Those were certainly remarkable men who swam their horses into the river where the flotilla was anchored, and succeeded in this most extraordinary onslaught. Pease, whose strain was half Spanish and half Indian, was intensely practical in his views of government, caring nothing for idealists and for those who indulged in abstract theories. He severed himself abruptly from Bolivar shortly after the final Patriot victories, and in the end was the chief cause of the exile of the Liberator. There is no doubt that both his views and those of the Liberator had changed considerably in the interval, for it is said that in 1826 General Pease had implored Bolivar to mount the throne of the new kingdom which it was proposed to found. The career of Pease fluctuated between a tenure of the office of President and an apparent retirement into private life, in the course of which, However, his influence and actual power remained as great as ever. Eventually José Tato Monagas, who had long enjoyed the support of Pease, revolted against the authority of the old chief. Pease, nothing loath, accepted the challenge, rallied his followers, and marched to battle. Here he was defeated and subsequently exiled. While Monagas was left in power, Pease eventually made his way to the United States. In his absence the condition of Venezuela became chaotic and its populace arrived in a ceaseless frenzy of civil strife. Pease returned from the United States in 1861, and at the spectacle of the terrible condition of his country he resolved, though 80 years and more of age, to enter once again the arena of public life. He succeeded in obtaining power, but only for a short while. The spirited but tottering old man was followed by Guzman Blanco, and died in 1873. Guzman Blanco was a man of education 
who had enjoyed the advantage of travel in various parts of the world, and proved himself an able leader. It was not long, however, before the party of the Monagas rose in rebellion against his authority. These adherents of the Monagas were now known as the Blues, and the party of Guzman Blanca was christened the Yellows. In 1870, after various victories and defeats, Guzman Blanco caused himself to be declared dictator. He enjoyed immense popularity until his resignation in 1877. He was succeeded by General Alcantara, and left for Europe. On his return he found that his influence and power had already been destroyed, placing himself at the head of a revolution. He again became chief of the state, which he continued to govern, either from within the republic itself, or from the banks of the same, until 1889. When his power was finally overthrown, Blanco himself made no attempt to return to the country. He remained in Paris, where he died in 1898. In 1895, when President Cristo was in power, a diplomatic incident occurred between Great Britain and Venezuela, owing to the arrest of two British police officers, who had been detained by the Venezuelan authorities. The actual cause of the dispute resolved itself into the question of frontier delimitation and soon the excitement in Venezuela had reached fever heat. This was by no means allayed when it became known that the United States were inclined to intervene on behalf of the minor republic. President Crispo himself displayed admirable tact, and it was largely due to his policy that the incident had a Pacific ending. It was in 1899, not long after these events, that General Crispo was slain in a skirmish with insurgents. After a period of anarchy General Castro was elected president. Not long after his accession this president succeeded in embroiling the state with Great Britain, Germany, and Italy. The main reason for the breaking off of friendly relations was his arbitrary refusal to consider the claims of these nations on account of the damage done to the property of their subjects in Venezuela in the course of the numerous revolutions which had recently occurred. The result of the obstinacy of General Castro was the establishment of a blockade of the port of La Guerra by the naval forces of Great Britain, Germany and Italy in 1902. The Custom House was seized, and the three powers signified their intention of retaining this until satisfaction could be obtained. Upon this the matter was referred to the Hague Tribunal, and awarded in favor of the three European powers concerned. International incidents of the kind had occurred, naturally enough, far more rarely in the history of South America than revolutions and civil war. Indeed, in the popular mind the chief feature of the continent was, until quite recently, represented by internal strife. How far from the truth is this estimate can only be judged by one who enjoys a personal acquaintance with republics such as Argentina and Chile. The sole centers where the phase of revolution has lingered on with an intermittent flourishing are those of the northern republics referred to in this chapter and the inland state of the center of the continent, Paraguay, a work of history, however slight and condensed though its form may be, is no place in which to indulge in prophecy. Yet it may safely be supposed that even in these less settled republics the age of tranquility is now at hand. In order to justify this assertion, it is nearly necessary to take a glimpse into the past, and to investigate the actual causes of these numerous revolutions which have splashed their marks so thickly on the clear road of South American progress. A country of great natural riches and of wonderful opportunities for mankind, a dearth of population, an unusual lack of facilities of communication, and Finally, an urgent need of ready cash in the midst of material plenty all these circumstances must necessarily tend to unrest in a land populated by inhabitants whose temperament contains an unusual measure of imagination and theoretical creative power. 
with the removal of these factors, the political situation tends to become tranquil, as has been proved in the case of the more progressive republics. It may safely be said that the South American temperament island in itself, no more revolutionary than any other, when the material circumstances of one of these states have been brought to resemble those which prevail in a European country, the conditions of politics necessarily grow to resemble each other as well. Thus the difficulty with which the more advanced republics are confronted is no longer one connected with rapid and disorderly changes of government and presidents. The states in question are now too wealthy in themselves and too loaded with serious responsibilities for the possibility of such casual recurrences. The strife, in consequence, tends rather to center itself, as in Europe, to a contest between capital and labor, and, as elsewhere in the world, strikes have taken the place of more sanguinary battles. All this, of course, applies with greater force to some of the South American countries than to others. The vitality and power of the continent in general is now, at all events, beginning to assert itself to the full, and in the minds of a certain number of its educated and intelligent inhabitants South America is destined in the future, however distant this may be, to become the rallying ground of the Latin races.